Hello and welcome to Growing Trends. This is your host Chris Coop with Ann Miller. Today we are interviewing Bill Sosinski, the founder of Energine University. We are also interviewing today Dr. Rich Sapienza. But they're willing to live with, which what we're seeing over and over again is how people are willing to live with these, these, these environmental disasters they're creating right in their own yard. They're fouling the nest, and they don't know that they're fouling the nest. And, and, and to me, that, that's the sad thing, is, is that because I think that comes, comes out of ignorance. And, and you know, if, if people would stop doing some of those things, just make certain kinds of decisions, it would, would be a lot easier. But we don't. We got this instant gratification, this, this, this uh, religion, which, which, is, which is money, and we, we're, we're, we've, we've messed up. The, the thinking around the world of how we can solve things. And so, to my mind, if, if we can't delay our gratification, how can we expect others around the world to somehow delay theirs? Um, so, uh, Listen, that, that's absolutely part of it, Rich. But when you look at a place, take, take China as a perfect example. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about a country along with India that's the most densely populated area of the world, right? China right now is so desperate to create food that they're overutilizing their aquifers. So you have the area that's north of Beijing, essentially, which used to be tremendous farmlands for them, which is now being turned into a desert. And the Chinese know it. But they can't stop pulling all the water out of the aquifer because they require, they need the food for their population. So every year they see the desert expanding. You know, they're having these incredible dust storms that are blanketing Beijing, but they can't stop. Because it's like saying to someone, okay, listen, if we're gonna if we're gonna recharge the aquifers, all you gotta do is not raise food for you know ten, fifteen years. If you don't do that, they starve to death. So they're not gonna starve to death because they have immediate needs. We've put ourselves in a terrible position. So it's not even a matter at this point of how greedy we are or short sighted. It's a matter of we've overextended our ability to manage our resources to the point where we're having a very difficult time regrouping to do it properly. And there's certain parts of the world where they're completely overmatched, and China being one of those places. You know, people are always concerned about, I guess recently, just uh, uh, a month ago, China's uh, uh, economy finally surpassed the United States. And it's really a much more powerful economy in the fact that they're also a receiver of a lot of debt from both the West and the United States from all the money they've lent out. However, when you look on the other side of that coin, they've got one billion, 1.2 billion people in their country that right now they cannot provide the resources for. And mm. their country is over-consuming, and it's over-producing, and you can't do that. I mean, you, they, they're sort of the other side of the coin from what the United States did. We used to over-consume, you know, from everybody else's resources, and now China is over-consuming so much that they're needing everybody else's resources just to survive. We were doing it because we were greedy and stupid and piggish. They're doing it but, because but of necessity. Really- they have to survive. And that's going to be the, and yet, yet, the case and yet for most the biggest, of the world. But, but, but most of the biggest problems that they've seen in China with food, and there is a problem, I'm not saying there's not, has been the dietary shift to animal-based foods induced by mm-hmm. income growth. By mm-hmm. them having more money, they can't, they, they want meat. And this has caused the pressure on the agricultural resources, 
On the mm. supply side, the uh, output it, of food no, in China no is up enormously. Okay? No doubt I mean, about it, that. And, and, but, but I'm saying, so, so why don't we go back to the Romans? What the Romans did, okay, we're going way back, was the Romans, you know, basically give bread away for free. So they developed mills to generate uh, bread like crazy and then basically started giving it away so people would eat less meat, so they would be more interested in, in that kind of thing right. and develop diets that were around those things so they could get flour to make bread very inexpensively so they didn't want to have cattle. They didn't want to have beef. And so the economics of the food became the driving thing. Here, it, to me, it's, again, it's, it's, it's back to this, you know, they want to have what we have. And so unless the dietary transition slows down, they're going to run into a massive problem. And I, on that, well, I it will slow agree. down. It's, gonna, it's slowing down out of necessity. I mean, in every yeah. country, you know, places like India, People, you know, are being asked to eat less. What a terrible thing to have to say to your population. I know they said the same thing in Tunisia and Egypt. Eat less. Eat less bread. Eat less wheat. Whatever it is that they can no longer produce. Once you start having to, to ask that of your population, because you're running out of food and you're running out of basic staples, mm -hmm. you're entering into a very, very serious area, right? So, you know, I agree with you. We're, our diet has changed. It's become richer. We require more of, of, of high-impact proteins and you know once people start eating more beef and more chicken you know not chicken so much but beef and pork and red meats which require an enormous amount of, of grain and resources mm -hmm. to produce a pound of protein you're putting a tremendous pressure on the, on the planet and that is absolutely an issue they're destroying their environment you know and that they can't yeah. raise yeah. it they don't have they don't have pollinators in central China they kill them all yeah. off with DDT they are no bees so they have lots of issues that they have to deal with. Bill, well, I'm, I'm gonna in, I'm, I'm gonna China. bring this uh, I'm gonna bring this back home to the U.S. for just a minute. On a positive note, <laughs> one thing that um that I what I like about our show, Growing Trends, is that in some way we're trying to get this back, you know, to how this affects things that grow and. Talk to me for a minute, gentlemen, about in the U.S. about the ideas of these community gardens and what do you see as a possible impact that those can have on a local community? Well, I see them as extremely positive. I'm I'm very much about urban agriculture. I love. I don't know if you've ever heard about the green gorillas. These are people that would take seeds and put them in a water balloon so it had the water and everything. And as they drove by empty lots in the city, they would throw out the water balloons that it would break and the seeds would get dispersed. And they, therefore, they would grow gardens in these areas. I, I, think, I think urban gardens make, make a lot of sense. And uh, urban gardens can also be a way for people to learn about sustainability and to to uh, to basically produce food. So I'm not opposed. That's like Bill said about uh, people growing food. I like urban gardens. I like the idea of vertical gardens too, of taking structures and build them so they are hydroponic and aeroponically uh, grown, so you can grow gardens in tall uh, features within a city, and maybe it becomes 
become something that uh, people will 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 like. But I think urban gardens help a community. It becomes a place where people can come together, can see what they're producing together, and hopefully share together. I mean, that's the goal. <laughs> uh, I think it has it has the potential to do more than just produce food for a community. It creates a yes. community atmosphere. It does right. a whole lot of things. Um, yes. Here's my question. I agree with you. I think that they're so positive, and I think what they'll turn into, hopefully, and if Bill's projections are correct, a way that people, right now, a community garden is more like a recreational thing. It will, mm-hmm. it will go from being recreational to being something that is really relied upon as, in, as a viable food source in a, uh, in a very right. real that, way. I think that's a trend, though. I think mm-hmm. the 21st century is going to see people raising food in every available area. I mean, you'll be raising food, you know, where you have a pantry right now, you may have a small indoor garden, that's a vertical garden, where you're able to produce some salad greens and maybe mm-hmm. some broccoli or cauliflower or other types mm-hmm. of vegetables, tomatoes, peppers, things that you're going to eat during the course of the week, and you'll be able to control the nutrients that go into it so you'll know you'll be getting a really good product. But you're going to see a lot of that, and I think everybody's going to have those in their houses within the next 20 years. You'll start seeing people raising, instead of having plants in the hallways of their working spaces, people will be raising fruit plants and and other types of plants that are edible at work. So that as you're on your way home, you'll cut something off, put it in a bag and take it home, and you feed your family with it. But that, that would seem to be the trend. We have to maximize the food production space and the water management space for the future. And I think that is going to be the trend. We'll see a lot of that. And I think it's going to be very positive. And I think the way it's going to go, though, do I see that? What I see happening is that first you're going to have co-ops in those kind of villages. So Mm -hmm. you'll develop an urban business community, and it'll have member ownership, and that will give empowerment. And then Mm -hmm. that hopefully builds trust in people and the community because that's what you need to have once Uh you get that trust in the community then people are more willing to pool resources and that mutual trust leads to a bigger growth in these things there's going to be people who have no interest at all in gardening but maybe they're a carpenter or maybe they have a vehicle of support and the next thing you know we'll have a new way of transporting people around many of the young people in the United States today don't own cars or don't want to or minimize their their automobile Um, Mm -hmm. you know why is that a bad thing I think that's a great thing so imagine if you had a community garden and you built a trust and somebody also put together a equivalent of, of I forgot what they call it, Uber or something like that, where mm-hmm. the car, they, there was local cars, so you wanted to go somewhere, you borrowed somebody's car, and you, and you took it and you drove it and you brought it back because the trust was there. And those, yeah. to me, that's where we have to go to. Uh, otherwise, we're, 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 we'll lose as a society. So we have to have all of this happen, and there's so many good things that can be done. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's so many smart ideas out there that I've seen that people have put together, you know, like this thing with the, like Uber we were talking about. Uh, And so I, I think if you develop a sustainable neighborhood with community agriculture, the whole goal of that 
is the next thing you know, you, you, you have entrepreneurial gardeners. You're going to have people that are going to grow things that are very special that they can sell because they're very hard to grow. You're going to have educational farms where things are grown to teach kids and so they understand about it. You're always going to have the recreational farm kind of thing, but at the same time, we develop these, these, these business-type community arrangements, which can turn into co-ops that eventually turn into a community support. And, of course, that leads to decreases in air and water pollution, beautification of the community, and it obviously leads to a more engaged community. And those are all the things we want to see. And, you know, and so, um, but how do you get that started? These are, the, these are the big things. Again, I go back to that every time. We've got to get away from a lot of the problems we have in mind, not in matter. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's the mind thing that we have to change, not the matter thing. Can we do it? Oh, yeah, can we do it? Can, can we develop regional food, food? Yeah, can't even talk. Food distribution diapers. Of course we can, but. Hey, yeah. hey Bill, when you, yes. um, when you, you know, you know so much more about what's happening around the world than I do. So things like the community gardens that we are seeing here in the States, and I totally agree with Richard and how powerful and, and, and important they are. Are those kinds of trends happening in China or India or, you know, places uh, where you they know, are? That, that's a good question. People have been growing their own food in little tiny on, on you know, little out, outcroppings on their rooftops and on, mm-hmm. on shelves and God knows where else in China forever. You know, you're mm-hmm. talking about okay. cultures that have had to deal with sustainability and have had to deal with a lack of resources on a much more direct level than we're, than we're about to experience uh, in Western culture because of the density of the population. I mean, there have always been a lot of people in China, and there have always been a lot of people in India. So, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that is something that you see. But, you know, also, if you go back in time, you know, there was a time in history where almost all of the produce, in fact, all of the produce that was eaten inside of Paris was raised inside of Paris. People mm-hmm. were raising all of their fruits and vegetables on rooftops and in the backyards. And mm-hmm. I just see that that is going to be the trend in the future. You know, just if you look at the price of food alone, you recognize mm-hmm. that once people have the ability to be able to really cut into those very expensive bills, I mean, you go into a supermarket and you're paying three ninety nine a pound for red peppers. Mm-hmm. Really? three ninety nine a pound? I mean, there are, there are systems out there right now where you can grow three or four dozen of them in 17 or 18 days, and they cost you maybe five or six cents a piece. So right. maybe you don't want to eat that many red peppers, but the point is that you can raise food with the technology that's available right now, you know, and there's advancements with everything else. There's a lot of advancements right now in how to grow food. Rich was mentioning hydroponics and aeroponics. There are systems that grow food inside of a cylinder so that you get the effects of gravity as they hang upside down, which increases the development of cell wall much more rapidly. You can control the nutrient flow that goes into the plants. And you can, with properly tuned LED lights, have a crop every 17 to 21 days as opposed to every, you know, every three to four months. So you're able to grow food much more rapidly. You can make sure that the nutrient flow that goes into it is consistent. And you can do it at home. 
And this is going to be something that's going to improve as time goes by. You're still limited to fruits, vegetables, and green leafy uh, vegetables uh, and herbs, things like that, that are non-pollinated. But, you know, in the future, you're also going to see artificial pollination, which unfortunately may become a necessity if we lose our bee population. So you'll have to be able to learn how to do that. And people are already learning how to do it. If you eat a pear that comes out of central China, that has been pollinated by human beings. They collect the, you know, the materials and they, they, with a, and they take a feather duster and they put it onto the stem and, and that's how they pollinate the pears and that's how they pollinate their apples because the bees are gone. So you know, this is a really unfortunate thing and we don't want to lose our bees and it would be a tragedy if we did and we have to do everything possible to make sure that we not only save our bees but you know, allow that population to rejuvenate. But, you know, there are going to be other ways that we're going to be forced to, uh, uh, to adjust if we're going to be able to feed ourselves in the future. I think we're clever enough to do it. How widespread that's going to be is another thing. You know, maybe it, it won't be widespread. Maybe it'll be everywhere. Hopefully it'll be everywhere so that uh, we can stop starvation and really give people what they need from a, a nutritional standpoint. Chris, you've been quiet for a while. Do you have anything I, <laughs> you want to jump in? I was listening. Yeah, actually, there's a few things. Um, we've had allotments in Europe for, for, since about the First World War, um, and every, every town in England that I can remember has its own allotment society, and people get 22 yards by one pole or whatever mm-hmm. wide and can grow anything they like there within reason. And, and it was usually um, old-age pensioners, but that's changed a little bit with this community thing. In, in Holland... They have little houses there, and in Germany, they have a very similar thing too. What, what, what I find interesting is that in France, they have a, a law that says that um, the price of uh, bread is determined by the government, and it's a staple, so therefore it cannot be um, profitized so much. And, and I, I'm pretty certain that the French are pretty good at producing their own food. They seem to have a much healthier lifestyle than, than most and um, I'm, I'm just wondering if they're being affected by all this. I know they've, they've not really, they've bypassed all these uh, modern genetically uh, modified crops and things. But um, the French farmers seem to be able to produce quite a bit. Um, but that's, it is a big landmass compared to England for the size of the population. So um, I don't know. It's, maybe we need to learn a little bit from each country and, and pull mm-hmm. it all and, and come up with a solution. I think I, that's right. That, I think that yes. there's a lot of intelligence out there. You just have to pick and choose who's doing what's right where. And we can go back 2,000 years, and, you know, the Romans were fantastic at storing water. We should be doing what they were doing 2,000 years ago. We should have cisterns yep. running underneath our street, recycling our gray water, so that we're not using our, our fresh water supplies, which people desperately need. I mean, there are, there are 20 countries right now where they don't have enough fresh water to drink. You know, and, and these are places that stay ahead of the curve in terms of how to manage their water supply, but we need to get better at it, and we need to be proactive about it, which is really the problem. We're a reactive species. We don't do this in well, advance of a problem. In, we do it afterwards. In, in, in England, we definitely have cisterns in the old Victorian houses, and, and what they have in all the modern houses is what's called a soak-away, and, and what that does is it collects all the, the rainwater from the uh, downpipes, and it goes back into the aquifer. And um, every single house has soakaways, except those in London, which are allowed to go into the drainage system because of the sheer number of them. But, and it works. And, and sometimes, 
and you know the by the time the water gets to London, it's been used by Thames Water maybe three times. It's pulled out of the Thames, cleaned, and then used in Oxford, and then in Reading, and then then it gets pulled out at Teddington and, and is used again by London. So those sort of processes are definitely possible. And I, I, I heard that they were thinking about doing that in California because people tend to freak out on the idea of having recycled water, but it's perfectly, you know, drinkable. Oh, oh it's perfectly fine, and, and they're doing things related to that and and I, what you just talked about is is as far as i'm concerned is something that we will eventually have to do we are reusing water just like i told you the fracking industry is reusing water well i think everybody's going to have to be reusing water hmm. so it's 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 a direction that we must think about for the things that bill brought up earlier of the fact that that you know we if we don't we're going to have a water problem we already having one in california as everybody knows they had a long-term uh drought and they're getting rain now but um they are sucking water from deep in the earth causing problems so uh, over time we, we we need to end that cycle of just sucking water out of there and have it get regenerated absolutely agree the, the only thing that worries me about that is that, they, the, um, oddly enough, the local school did a, um, a science project here, and they discovered that um, there was a huge amount of uh, estrogens and, um, and uh, <laughs> prescription drugs in the uh, water supply. Right. Yeah. Well, yep. no, yep. That's, you're right. I mean, the, the problem with pharmaceuticals leaching into our water supply, a lot of which, come, which comes out of our farming industry because they give, they give so much, you know, so many chemicals go into cows and all of that stuff. I know it's a huge issue in Wisconsin, and they're starting to legislate against it. So they're trying, you have to figure out ways now to manage the effluent that comes out of your farm animals so that it doesn't get into the water table. Right, and it's management, managing that using science and technology. Those materials can be broken down. We have, the, we have these problems, I told you, in the fracking industry. We get chemicals that we don't want to have go around. We, we have methodologies and have methods now to destroy these things. Um, there was a project done by one of our students in breaking down ibuprofen that's in the water, and uh, things like sucralose. Sucralose is going to become a massive problem. I, I predict it. I predicted it when it first came out. It's chlorinated sugar. If it goes right through you, where is it? It's staying in the supply. We have all of these pharmaceuticals, they stay in the supply. The problem is the technology that we're using in these water plants is 50 years old. There are new technologies which can destroy all those chemicals and stop these things from happening. Where should they be applied? Yes, they should be applied initially at the farm or at wherever the, wherever the, the problem is occurring. But next, they should be applied at the water plant itself. But, you know, everybody tells us, oh, no, we've got to save money. You know, we, we can't spend our money on that. And I'm telling you, th th this is what we have to change. The, and I go back to the instant gratification. I mean, because to me, that's where it falls into. I mean, you, you, nobody wants to, you know, we don't want to rebuild bridges. We don't want to do anything, you know, because, oh, man, I, I, my bridge ain't there for a week. That, that's horrible. You know, that's the end of the world. I've got to drive around the town. You know, I may have to, you know, carpool. Uh, so, I mean, uh, we have to change. We have to change some of our thinking. Richard, you're absolutely right. Those points are, are right on. And the truth is there's algae out there. There's all sorts of bacteria and, and, you know, that we can use.
to manage all of these these water supplies that you know i mean it's amazing what 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 different types of algae can do to pollutants in the way they yep. can break them down these are are monstrously complex industrial machines algae and there's so many millions of different types that have different types of attributes that can be applied to water supplies or to growing food or reestablishing re the health of soil such that, you know, you want to talk about another big thing that's going to happen in the 21st century is algae. You're going to see algae manufacturing on land in so many different varieties as different types of algae are identified that can help with food production, energy production, remediation of soils, removal of pollutants, things like that. Algae is amazing stuff. And the thing is, you can create algae that can solve your problem and at the same time create, buy, you know, uh, uh, additions for, for uh, you know, uh, uh, nutraceuticals and for all sorts of nutrients such that you can create very valuable end products from processing waste in a positive way. You know, we, mm -hmm. you know Rich is always talking about CO2 and producing CO2. Well, CO2 is great stuff if it's not getting into the atmosphere and it's not getting into our biosphere, into our oceans. If you want to manage CO2 and you can pump it into greenhouses, you increase the speed at which you grow plants. You know, Absolutely. the world becomes incredibly, incredibly polluted with CO2. You're going to start seeing larger human beings. It's when we had the highest CO2 levels on the planet that we had the dinosaurs. It just creates large animals, large fruit, large vegetables. It speeds up the speed at which cell wall development takes place. And it's really a good thing for agriculture. So if you take all the places that are creating CO2 on an industrial level and hook them up to an algae plant or to an agricultural facility where that CO2 is being reused to either grow algae that's beneficial on the, the other end, it's encapsulating the CO2 and you're creating nutrients or you're creating additives, whatever you're doing with it, or doing that to raise fruits and vegetables, there you've got a positive use for that CO2. And it's a way to capture it. And it's a way to capture it positively. Wow, I can I I just have to say, I feel like we could just talk for hours and guys. hours and hours. I we, just one thing just leads into another into another. It's amazing. I just I so yeah, much we, appreciate your time, your expertise, um, Richard Sapiens. I'm going to get your name right, and Bill Sosinski. I mean, I I can only speak for myself. Um, but I, I, I'm so thankful that you have taken the opportunity here to just open my eyes, open my mind to all kinds of possibilities. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure for me to, and it's always a pleasure for me to listen to Rich. Uh, anytime <laughs> I can be in a conversation with him, I consider myself yeah. lucky. I feel like I'm in the okay. gallery, the popcorn gallery, but I'm enjoying it, and I don't want the movie to be over, but I feel like uh, we probably need to give you guys a yeah. break and plan our next conversation. And I think algae um, is, we just barely, barely Hi. touched on that. So that um, would be a wonderful topic to pursue. So let's let's leave your let's leave your listeners with with an interesting conundrum. In the world today, there's a vain search for human happiness through technology. And why is that so? When technology can answer everybody's question. Like it. Okay. 
<laughs> we That's hate, really cool. That is cool because we, we it's it, you know everybody thinks that technology is going to bring them happiness, but is it the wrong technology? You know, are we yeah. spending too much money on the internet, and not enough money on you know food growth or something like that? No, but you're wrong. It, you're wrong, Richard. I don't need technology. I just need a really good bag of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> but it took technology to get you that good bag of chocolates. <laughs> Let's make that a really good bottle of wine. I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase okay. that. that that's good too. Wine is another good yeah, chocolate. Wine, wine and chocolate. There you wine go. Wine and chocolate uh, with some mm-hmm. cheese and you got it made. There you go. So you sit down in there. Well, the I'm, gonna, there. I'm gonna raise my imaginary glass and I want you all to join me and just we imaginary toast each other and thank you so much and uh Listeners, yes, that's a wonderful way to end our evening and just appreciate the time that we've had with these gentlemen and we'll just keep this conversation going. Agreed, Chris? Absolutely, yes. We will continue this fascinating interview with Bill Sosinski and Rich Sapienza next week on Growing Trends. In the meantime, I'm happy to tell you that you can find us on iTunes. We're called Growing Trends, of course. You can also continue finding us at www.growingtrends.org. This is Chris and Anne saying bye for now, and do come back and listen to the next episode. It's even more interesting.